The year was 1997. The car was a four-cylinder 1989 Dodge Shadow. The men, men, were Bob Gadula and Greg Dermody. As we drove with our newfound freedom that came with having your own driver's license in your own car, to pick up tickets early for a movie so that us and the ladies wouldn't have to wait in line later that day. And we went screaming down 490 because that's what young men do when they have newfound freedom. And screaming down 490 west towards Buffalo Road to get to Tinseltown, I see to my left a speed trap set up by the cops. My heart jumps into my throat until I realize, no, they're only tagging people going east. And so I continue to scream down 490, get to Tinseltown, buy the tickets for the movies, turn around, get on 490 east to come back home. We're going to hang out for a little bit, pick up the ladies, come to the point where I know the speed trap is, and in my ever so clever way, slow way down. Because I'm not, my mama didn't raise no fool children, you know what I'm saying, (laughs) right? Like, if I know a speed trap's there. And so I slow down to a reasonable, or what I considered to be a reasonable rate of speed at the time. I've never been known for my patience behind the wheel. And I look in, I see it's like hovering just below 60. I say, I should be fine right here. And we crest the little hill or turn to right where it is. And sure enough, there's the cops. And as we make the turn to where they come into view, this blue BMW goes screaming past me and I just laugh (laughs) he didn't know there was a speed trap and so I just drive my merry way you know and the cop comes pulling out I'm like he's gonna get him and the lights go on and I move out of the way for him to go get that BMW that's screaming down the road and the cop stays behind me and I'm like what what gives and so I pull over and the officer comes walking up and he asks me the question he goes do you know how fast you were going I said yes I was going 59 miles an hour he said no you were going 72 I said no officer there was a blue BMW that went flying past me you tagged him not me he says you were going 72 I said officer I just came from the other way I knew you were there I'm not an idiot I'm not going to drive fast when you know you're there and the cop says to me License and registration, please. There was no reasoning with this man. And I paid it because, let's face it, I was speeding the whole other time. The only reason I slowed down at that moment was because I knew he was there. Teens, do not be like that. Be better than me in this area. Sorry, moms and dads, for sharing that story. But I remember being so frustrated because I knew that even though I was guilty most of the time, this time it wasn't me. But who are you going to believe? The guy driving the BMW or the punk kid behind the wheel who has like a decal of a naked Kelvin and Hobbes like running across his back windshield with his SUNY Brockport sticker on there and a tassel hanging on the rear view You ain't going to believe the kid, right? There was no reasoning with this man. Even though I knew what I was talking about, there was no way that this guy was going to talk to me about it. It was simply license and registration, please. I think one of the things that most upsets me in life is the answer because I said so. I think it's just something deeply within me that's wired. There's still, even though Jesus has been doing a work in me for 20 plus years now, there's still this rebellious quality to it that needs it explained. Like, you need to give me the why to go along with the what. And I'm not saying everybody should be this way. I'm just saying this is me. And so when people say, believe this, why? Because the Bible says so. 
well, why should I believe the Bible? Right? Well, why should this, well, why should I believe that? When people, when people talk about God and act as if it's just this act of blind faith, that we should just go along with it because the pastor over here is doing it or the people over here say so, man, it drives me nuts because one thing that I love about God is he is not simply a license and registration, please, type of God. Those moments happen. God does need to dish out discipline. He is the one who chastises us like a father who loves us loves his son, but God talks all the time about coming to him. In James 4, 8, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The idea of being relationship. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, let's have some communion here. Let's talk together. Let's reason together. In Malachi three ten, talking about how he wants us to give our tithes and offerings, he says, Test me in this. What he's saying is there's an exchange that takes place, not simply a because I said so. We're starting a new series today. It's called The Gospel of Isaiah. And the scripture that we're in that Pastor Pat asked me to preach on is Isaiah 118. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have. We thank you that you've given us your word. And we thank you that you are a God who chooses to meet with us. That you say, let's reason together. Lord, that you give us more than enough why to go with the what. We thank you that you are a God that is personal, a God that is knowable, a God that is consistent, and a God that is loving. And we just pray that we would draw closer to you today and that your Holy Spirit would reign in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 118, he says, come now and let us reason together. The fact that Isaiah says, let us reason together, the fact that the Lord is saying, let us reason together, should tell us something that we need to know. It's that our faith is reasonable. It's that there should be answers to the question why. And God isn't afraid of the question why. In fact, if you never ask the why questions ever, then I have to ask, is your faith really authentic or is it just collective groupthink? You're going along with what all of these people have said right here. You have to ask the difficult questions in order to get to the root of what's going on. And so when he says, let's reason together, and then he talks about our sins being forgiven, and while Jesus isn't mentioned specifically in the scripture by name in the Old Testament, it's clearly pointing to Jesus as he says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Let's reason about this. Let's talk about this. Let's think about this. I think one of the number one questions that I get as a pastor, far more than how do I know that there's a God, far more than anything about science and the Bible or, or, or any of that, I think the number one question that I get when people are really examining their faith is in Christianity, as we're about to receive communion, and Jesus said, remember what I'm doing for you. People want to know, why did Jesus have to die? I think that our modern sensibilities are disturbed by the gruesome image of the cross. 
I think that the idea of a bloody sacrifice leaves us kind of, the kids would call it cringy, right? Like that's not something we want to talk about. Even sometimes when we're singing these worship songs, there's things that talk about like being bathed in the blood of the lamb. And I'm like, oh no, if there's a visitor here, they're going to think we're a bunch of nut jobs today talking about bathing in blood. Like why the cross? If God is all powerful and if God is all loving, if God is supreme and God makes the rules, then why on earth would God have to send his own son in order to die to forgive sins, right? I think that's a legitimate question. I think that's a fair question to ask. Why the cross? Why, in order to deal with sin, did Jesus have to die in such a way? Tim Keller wrote an excellent book, and I'm going to borrow heavily from it today. It's called The Reason for God. I I can't recommend it to you enough. It's called The Reason for God, and he asks a ton of the why questions in there. But talking about the cross, he answers us two, or he gives us two answers. And and I have them on your outline today. If you're taking notes, there's a little space for you right there. But if we ask, why did Jesus have to die? Why can't God just accept everyone, or at least those who are sorry for their wrongdoings? Why was the cross necessary to forgive sins? Reason number one, true forgiveness is costly suffering. True forgiveness is costly suffering. Let me give you just a purely economic illustration. Say you have a nice house and at the bottom of your nice house, you got a driveway and it's, it's got gardens along there with those like nice paver retaining walls and all that. And you've got a nice gate at the bottom of your driveway and, and you drive a truck and somebody's moving and they need to borrow your truck and you're a kind hearted person. And so you say, of course you can borrow my truck if you're moving. And so you toss them the keys and while backing out of your driveway, this person who's never driven a truck before and isn't aware of the size difference between that and their Honda Civic, backs right into the gate and takes out a big chunk of the wall where they're at it. And so now your gate is bent and hanging and your wall is crumbling and your garden's everywhere. The fact of the matter is, from a purely economic standpoint, that's got to be paid for in order to be fixed. If you want to restore things to how they should be, There is a debt involved in that. It's going to cost hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to fix that. In order to go from ruin to what we want it to be, to restoration, that debt needs to be satisfied. Now you have a couple of options in this. Option number one, you can force that person to pay for it, including whatever they did to your truck. You have to pay for this. You bear responsibility for this cost. You're the one who did it. You're the one who needs to cover it. Option number two, you deny the person the ability to pay for the cost. I'm going to take care of everything. And I suppose there's a third option where you can kind of negotiate in here. But let's just say for a second, because we're talking about Jesus and us, that the person has absolutely no way to pay for the cost of the repairs. You know their financial situation and you know there's no way that they can cover this. See, now it becomes you can pursue them by legal means and try to destroy their, or you just bear the cost yourself. Either way, for true forgiveness means the debt is satisfied. Somebody's got to pay. Now, here's the scoop. That's easy for us to visualize and understand from financial But true forgiveness, real life, it goes way beyond money, doesn't it? Some of the stuff that we walk through with people, the stuff that we bump into with people, 
it costs us a lot more than money. There's a loss that takes place, a debt that exists. Happiness, reputation, time. Some people look back and you say, that person cost me years of my life. Opportunity. Because of what they did, I'm not able to. Aspects of your freedom. True forgiveness goes deep. You can't put a price tag on these things, but they've reached a level that simply can't be dismissed. So what are your options with this? You can't get those things back, but one option is you can hurt the people who've hurt you. You can go out and actively try to tarnish their reputation. Go after them, make sure everybody knows what they did to you. That way they won't hurt anybody else. And in some way you feel like that debt's being satisfied. We do it. You can viciously confront them. Make sure they live with the same fear and hurt that you've had to deal with. I think a lot of times what happens is that passive aggressive, you can withhold relationship from them. You can cut them off and make sure that they're missing out and that they know it. And if you hurt them enough, If you stick it to them enough, you may feel a level of satisfaction that they're paying off their debt, but here's the thing, they're not. You might be mildly satisfied that they're hurting too, but the gate's still bent and the garden's still ruined. The debt hasn't been paid. Those things are not restored. And here's the result of those things, lashing out or ruining their reputation or withholding relationship. You yourself may become bitter and cold. You may become self-pitying and therefore more self-absorbed. You might end up holding it against anyone else in that person's demographic. If it was a wealthy person, well, all rich people are like this based on their race or their belief system. Tim Keller says it this way, evil has been done to you, yes, but when you try to get payment through revenge, the evil does not disappear. Instead, it spreads and spreads most tragically of all into you and your own character. I think it was uh, Eleanor Roosevelt that said unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Option number two, you can forgive. I won't let you pay that debt. I'm going to bear it. This means refusing to allow them or to force them to pay for what they did. And it's worth noting that to do this without lashing out or seeping anger, sometimes we're doing it and we're holding it in and we're just trying to take care of it, but you find it seeping into other areas, right? You're in this conversation over here that has nothing to do with that and you find out like, why am I angry with this person as it, but it's really this over here. When you hold it in without lashing out or allowing it to seep, it's a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, opportunity, but you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You're denying yourself that small satisfaction that you get when they're hurting too. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. And it hurts terribly. And some of you have been through some really serious stuff and you've forgiven 
some really heavy stuff. Talking to some of you, it feels like a kind of debt or death. Yeah, but it's a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor back around World War II, and he saw what was happening with the Nazi party in Germany. And he, because of his studies and travels and speaking engagements, he was safely over in America, but when he heard what was happening with the Jews and even within the church and the way that the Nazi party used propaganda, he felt like what he needed to do was be back in Germany. He actually put himself in harm's way. He said, somebody's got to stand up against this and we need to show what true Christianity is. And he's watching people that he loves being arrested and taken away. He's watching what's happening to his country and, and he has to deal with it. And reading in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which if there's somebody who can talk about the cost of discipleship, it's Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was arrested and eventually died. He was taken to a concentration camp and just before the end of the war, he was murdered, killed. This is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer had to say about the Nazis and about forgiveness, the people who killed him and his friends. He said, my brother's burden, which I must bear, is not only his outward lot, his natural characteristics and gifts, but quite literally his sin. And the only way to bear that sin is by forgiving it in the power of the cross of Christ, which I now share. Forgiveness is the Christ-like suffering which it is the Christian's duty to bear. Why did Jesus have to die? Why the cross? Why that gruesome spectacle instead of God just wiping out sin? Because forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it so that you can reach out and seek your enemy's renewal. Forgiveness is not about them paying. Forgiveness is about them being restored. And so me with my sin, it's not about God making me pay for my sin. It's about God providing a way for me to be restored, be made right, a debt that I could never pay on my own. And so he has to. Forgiveness means absorbing the sin debt yourself. If Jesus Christ is God, which the Christian faith has always maintained, then Jesus had to take the burden on himself in order for God to truly forgive so if forgiveness requires costly suffering, why would God even want to forgive? Well, the answer is in the second point, because God is love, and real love is a personal exchange. First Peter 4, 8 in the NIV says this, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Why the cross? Number one, because true forgiveness is costly suffering. It is. And, and for those of you out there today who are walking through this, don't you love that God never asks you to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself? God didn't need to step into this, but he did. And so when you say, how can I forgive something so great? Bonhoeffer is right only in the power of the cross. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, I want to know you in the fellowship of your suffering and the power of your resurrection. You need both. Real love is a personal exchange. 
Relationships are defined by sharing. Uh, my favorite part of marriage is that we do life together. We laugh together. We cry together. We minister together. We walk together. We exchange together. It's just, it's all about the togetherness. It's all shared. Shared experiences, shared responsibilities, shared passion. And most of it is positive. But if you only share in the positives, it's not real love, right? That's the problem that so many people have as we, we view these, the, these movies is that's what love is. And you forget like, no, you got to bear one another's burdens in that. That's the vows that I took with Pam. We're celebrating 14 years on Tuesday. I'm pretty excited about that. She's, uh, yeah, she's had to put up with me for 14 years. That woman deserves a medal. But, <clears throat> but it's about the worst of each other and still loving one another. There are areas where I have failed deeply. And she carries that for me. I'm released, I'm free. How does she do that? It's because Christ did it for her. And so she walks in the power of the cross and she trusts God to move us forward together. She lets him deal with her healing. She simply walks in obedience. It doesn't mean the pain isn't there. It doesn't mean the struggles aren't there. And I get to do the same with her. Real love is a personal exchange. It's impossible to love people with a problem or a need and not make that problem your own. For instance, our son Caleb, Cal, he's seven weeks old now. He is adorable, man. He's just a tra- I love this kid. He's like finally starting to smile at you. I've learned he doesn't like my deep voice, but if I talk to him in this like high-pitched little baby voice, he gets all grins with me. And so, so if you hear me around my house, like talking like this all the time, it's because that's like the only way I can get my son to smile at me. But here's the thing, no matter how, and we love this kid with a love that words cannot possibly do it justice, right? I love this kid so much. But he's helpless. For him to have any life at all, no less, I'm talking just his heart keeps beating, his body keeps functioning, not to mention the life that's set before him. Pam has to sacrifice her freedoms in order for him to have his. Do you understand that? This is what real love is. There is an exchange that takes place right there. Real love is a personal exchange. For instance, it requires very little of us to love people who are well-adjusted and happy, but a person who is emotionally needy or hurting, that's a little different. If I want to bring that person up emotionally, the conversations and the time spent with them will require me being emotionally drained in the process. Now, you might be hearing the wrong thing there. What you might be hearing in this is, oh, I don't want to bother Pastor Bob with my stuff. No, we're called to bear one another's burdens, and this is what Christ did for us. It's the greatest joy in my life to be able to walk with people through their stuff. Like, I want to jump right into the mud with you because of how many people jumped into the mud with me. When I'm low, I need somebody to be there to help me come up. But understand that there is an exchange that takes place. As I come down to help you up, I need to come down to help you up. Does that make sense? You need to come down to help me up. Real love requires a personal exchange. Let me take it from a different direction. Say you're on the street. This is kind of like guy 101 right here. I'm going to give you a little window into the teenage brain, right? 
These things that you see on movies, like the plane is going down, the pilot's dead, and the guy that stands up and says, I'll take care of it, like, those are not fantasies. We're just, those are realities waiting to happen for most of us. Like, I'm just looking for the opportunity. But let's just say you're out on the street. You're just minding your own business. I'm, I'm walking out of Wegmans with my groceries, and somebody comes running up to me and says, help me, help me. They're trying to kill me, right? This guy's going to get, you got to help me. They're trying to kill me. Get me out of here, man. Now, I have a choice to make. If this Say that what this person's saying is true and, and all right, jump in my car and get to my house, right? I am perfectly safe. This person is in mortal danger. If I jump in to help him out of mortal danger, I am risking my own stability and security. I have to leave safety in order to bring him to safety. Do you understand what I'm saying with this? Real love is a personal exchange. Keller says this, he will experience increased safety and security through your involvement, but only because you are willing to enter his insecurity and vulnerability. There's a personal exchange. All life-changing love towards people with serious needs is a substitutional sacrifice. If you become personally involved with them in some way, their weaknesses flow toward you as your strengths flow toward them. John Stott writes in The Cross of Christ that substitution is at the heart of the Christian message. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where God deserves to be, and God put himself where we deserve to be. Why the cross? First of all, because true forgiveness is costly suffering. And second, because real love is a personal exchange. God can't say God is love and not do this. God can't say I'm love and just wipe out debt. No, it has to be paid for. And who has to pay for it? The only one who can afford it. And that's God. The message of the cross is this, that sin has separated us from God. And the Bible's clear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we were helpless. And we don't like that because that comes up against our pride. No, I feel like I can do enough. You can't. You might be better than the person sitting next to you, but you're not being compared to the person sitting next to you. That cop that was looking at me and said, license and registration, please, was right. I was still speeding. I'm guilty. It might not have been at the moment that he said I was doing it, but the fact of the matter was I was guilty. And I can argue as much as I want, but the fact of the matter is I was wrong. If you were listening to the story, I didn't slow down to 55 miles an hour. I slowed down to 60. I was breaking the law. I was doing better than a bunch of the other people around me, but I was still guilty. That's what sin is. We're all guilty. We can't live up to God's standard. And he knew it. And so for forgiveness, that debt, that sin debt has to be paid. But who can afford it? Not a single one of us. The wages of sin is death. There's nothing I can do. But the cross. The cross is where God and love offers not only costly suffering as a personal exchange, but he shows us what love is. 
If you want to know how bad sin is and how fiercely it needs to be judged because of its destructive nature, because sin kills, oh, it kills relationships, it kills families, it kills dreams. Most of all, it kills your relationship with God, and that's an eternal relationship. That sin debt has to be paid, and it's a ferocious debt. You want to see how brutally God deals with sin? Look at the cross. You want to see how deeply God loves you? how deeply God cares about you and how far he's willing to go. Come let us reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Look at the cross. As the worship team comes out, I want to give you just a couple of verses that deal with this. The picture in scripture is clear that each of us of us as a sinner who has no way to restore a relationship with God on our own. And so he became the way. Let me just read you these verses from scripture. And scripture is clear. I mean, from, from beginning to end. Gang, this book talks about the perfection that God created us in in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? And by chapter 3, we'd blown it. And the rest of the book, right up until Revelation 20, is God making it right. It's costly sacrifice and a personal exchange. It's not a guilt trip where you need to realize it's a reality check. Hey, we need to realize. You know those people that you just can't reason with because they can never imagine a world in which they might be wrong? careful that we're not those people my pride wells up and says my sin isn't that bad God says otherwise and he demonstrates otherwise then my pride wells up and says there must be something I can do to take care of it but you can't you can't that's why the image of the church is a bunch of holier than thou people, this elite group who's arrived and who knows some things and have said, man, that's a joke. That's not the church. The church is a group of people who simply recognize I'm the worst. I mean, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, said, I am the chief among sinners. I am the worst of all of the sinners. And that's the guy that wrote most of the New Testament. Where does that leave you and me? Here's what the Bible says about sin and about God. About that costly forgiveness and that personal exchange. Romans 3, 23, which we always read, but 24 is the best it's the, the conclusion of it. 23 says, all. That means every one of us. 
from the highest to the lowest, from the greatest to the least. I don't care what you're wearing or what you look like or how you were brought up. I don't care how much money you have or don't have. I don't care what size your boat is. It doesn't matter. All, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's every one of us. God's here, we're here. But love requires a personal exchange. For me to come up, he had to come down. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's verse 24, the good news. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not because of what you've done that's right, but because of what he did for you on the cross. Why the cross? For you. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. While we were running, God said, that's all right. I'm going to take the cost. I'm going to pay for this one. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not earned, given. What I earn is wages. That's death. That's separation from God. What's given is that forgiveness. Romans 5, 8, our opening scripture today. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand that? We were still sinners. So many of us, and it's our pride, we say, I need to get stuff right so I can come to God. Stop it. You can't get stuff right. You can't. God can. I just know sin keeps us from wanting to come to the altar. Sin keeps us from wanting to come to God. Well, I know how dirty I am. I found most people, I don't need to tell them where they're wrong. Some people you do, but most people, they know that they're wrong here. And the problem is, is that they want to be a little bit cleaner before they present themselves to Jesus. He says, well, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Mm. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. This isn't talking about a cheap prayer. Bonhoeffer in that book that I told you about, The Cost of Discipleship, he talks about cheap grace, that God gave it freely and so we just give it away. It cost us nothing. And so that's cheap grace. No, we're not talking about some cheap little like, well, I can just keep on sinning. I can live my life because God, no. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And to recognize that somebody is sacrificed like that for you, the only logical conclusion is love. If you believe in your heart, I went skydiving once. I didn't think that the parachute was going to open. I believed because it was my only hope. When you come to that point, when God quickens you to that point, when you believe in your heart and then we confess with our mouth, Lord, I need you. I need you. Every hour I need you. Oh, the cross. 
First John 1 9 God who cannot lie says this if we confess our sins to God not to one another to God Lord this is who I am this is where I am if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness gang the cross has always been the symbol of Christianity in 1 Corinthians 1 18 it says for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of God the cross is proof of sin's penalty that sin created a debt that needed to be paid but Jesus in forgiveness paid it. The cross is the revelation of God's love that Jesus in a great personal exchange emptied himself so that we could be filled. He came down so we could move up. The cross is the reminder of who I am now. With such finality, Jesus on the cross proclaimed, it is finished. Sin no longer holds power over me. That's finished because of the cross. Sin's penalty no longer applies to me because it was paid on the cross. Finally, the cross is the promise of heaven. Death is no longer something to be feared. When Mary went home, she went home. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints because of the cross because of what Jesus paid so I'm going to ask those who are helping assist with communion if you would come forward at this time so come around the communion table what we're doing is we're remembering what Jesus did Jesus it says on the night that he was betrayed he's sitting there with his disciples it says he took the bread and he broke it and he shared it with the disciples. He said, take and eat. This bread represents my body and the new covenant that I've made in you. I'm being broken so that you don't have to. In the same manner, he took the cup and he told them, take and drink. This cup, it represents my blood. It was poured out for you. It was yours to pay, but I've paid it through costly suffering that's what forgiveness is it was yours to bear but I came to elevate you because that personal exchange is what love does and he said this and this is what I want us to do right now he said and often as you eat this bread and drink this cup and in a moment when it comes by there's two cups in there together just take them out and separate them. The bread is in one, the cup's in the other, or the juice is in the other. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. If you've never reasoned with God before, if this whole Jesus thing is kind of new to you or you were raised in a, a situation where there was a culture of Christianity but not the relationship that we're talking about here now's the time as we're handing out the emblems and as the worship team plays this song the mighty cross oh the mighty cross take a minute and just talk with God
You don't need to have all the answers right off the bat. Nobody does. But you can pray, and in a moment, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Relationship might take a little while to develop, but it starts with a conversation, doesn't it? Start that conversation with the Lord. And then I want to encourage you when we dismiss, right up here, Pastor Ken and Pastor Dan, they would love to meet with you. They would love to talk with you more about what it means to be a Christian. It's not weird. We got a Bible for you. We want you to grow in relationship with the one who went through that costly suffering for you. With the one who did that personal exchange for you. If you're here today and you've been with Jesus for a while, I don't know about you, I found in my life, it's the ones that I know the best and that I'm closest to that I tend to take for granted. There's just an assumption there after a while. Jesus says, remember me. As we prepare to take communion, would you take some time to remember Jesus? Take some time to remember where you were headed when he stepped in. Take some time to remember what forgiveness cost and take some time to reflect and be thankful. As the worship team sings and the emblems are distributed, would you just spend some time with Jesus? Not the people around you, not me. Spend some time with Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the costly suffering that you paid so that the debt could be forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for the personal exchange that you made so that we can have a future and a hope in you. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.